0: Welcome to Hitsville. We live in a culture where it seems as though everyone wants to find a hit, buy a hit, share a hit, and most of all, make a hit. But what exactly is a hit? Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo.
1: And now a word from Ziprecruiter our presenting sponsor. What does Passion Fruit have to do with testing for passion? Hey there, I'm Ian Siegel and I'm the CEO and co-founder of ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Being an entrepreneur and owning a business has been a dream of mine since I was a kid and I've learned a lot of interesting things while turning that dream into a reality. Like how Passion Fruit can help you find passionate employees. More on that later in the show. I founded ZipRecruiter because I knew there was a smarter way for businesses to find talent. Today, companies of all sizes and industries use ZipRecruiter to fill their hiring needs. And if you're hiring now, you can try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com Seth. 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. So try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com Seth. See you later in the show.
0: Long time ago, a guy named George Zipf decided to count all the words in a bunch of books. Add them all up. See which ones showed up the most often. No surprise, the word the shows up the most, followed by of, and then and. You probably could have guessed that. What's really interesting, though, is that the most common word shows up twice as many times as the second most common word, and three times more than the third most common word, four times more than the fourth most common word. That, in fact, the 135 words that show up the most frequently in a typical book account for half of all the words that are used. This is called a power law curve. And I can't believe I'm using audio to describe it to you. It's in the show notes at akimbo.link. But it looks almost exactly as you would expect, like a steep ski hill with a really long runoff at the bottom. That the ones at the top, the tip-top, the hits, those are really high up. And then it levels and levels and levels and levels out until all the way at the end you've got words like zoometry and zoetrope. They don't even have to start with Z. They're just words that don't show up very much. Well, it turns out that this power law curve is sort of universal. If we take a look at best-selling books, of which there are a million tries a year with people publishing a book, we see almost precisely the same curve, and with movies, and with TV shows, and with items on the menu at a restaurant, and work your way down the list. We know what a hit looks like. A hit, is something that shows up a lot more than anything else. Two times, three times, four times more. It turns out that when your book is a number one bestseller, you hear from a lot more people than if it's number 10 on the bestseller list. Because the number one book, according to Ziff's Law, will sell 10 times as many copies as the number 10 book. That's a huge distinction. So to start to understand this, let's compare... The Super Bowl with Thanksgiving and beer. The Super Bowl is the most watched TV show in the country and has been for a long time. Why is that? Well, it could be for one of three reasons. Either people who don't watch a lot of TV all come together to watch the Super Bowl at the same time. I think that's true. Or people who watch lots of different kinds of TV add the Super Bowl to their list of things to watch. That's definitely true. Or three, people watch a lot, a lot, a lot of the Super Bowl. Well, that makes no sense because you can only watch the Super Bowl once. So it's the first two. That it's a hit because they got the people who don't watch a lot of TV and they also got the people who do. Thanksgiving. What about Thanksgiving? Well, if we ask about turkey, turkey sales in the United States, they don't sell that much turkey in July. And they sell a lot of turkey in November. Why is that? Well, it's pretty simple. Because people who don't eat turkey eat turkey in November. It's probably not true that heavy turkey eaters eat even more turkey in November. That's unlikely. It's a little like the Super Bowl. But what about beer? Well, it turns out that the popularity of beer brands exactly follows Ziff's Law. Let's think about the best-selling light beers in America. The number one brand of beer is Bud Light, followed by Coors Light, which has half the sales of Bud Light, followed by Miller Light, which, yes, you've guessed it, has one-third the sales of Bud Light. What's the secret? How do you make a hit beer? Well, yes, it's helpful that if you go to a party, popular beer is served because the host of the party wants to make sure that the popular beer, meaning the one that a lot of people like, is available. But in this case, the third thing kicks in. And that third rule is people who drink a lot of beer drink Bud Light. That's essential. These people are called whales. Whales Because as you know, whales eat a lot of plankton, millions and millions of pounds of plankton for one whale. That when you make a product or service that can be used a bunch, appealing to people who use a product or service a lot is essential. Simple example, 44% of the people who use Twitter have never tweeted, not once. So where does Twitter's usage come from? It comes from the whales, from people who use it all the time. Consider Glenn Reinhardt. Glenn has an interesting hobby. His hobby, according to The New Yorker, is that he likes to return city bikes from busy stations to empty ones. That what he does is he looks at the map of stations that are full, goes there, grabs a bike, And rides it to a station that's empty. He doesn't get paid particularly to do this. It's his hobby. Last year, he did it 8,000 times. That's a lot. He did it 8,000 times. I know you're going to have trouble guessing this. But yes, he did it twice as many times as the next person who's busy returning bikes. So what we see is if we want to create a hit, we have to think about these three groups in equal measure. So if you're an author and you want your book to be a hit, let's say it's The Da Vinci Code, the key to that book, or a book like Eat, Pray, Love, is that the people who bought it at its peak, that's the only book they bought that year. That the average American only buys a book a year And if you can be the book that the average American buys, you have a hit. So that's what we see often, particularly in the book business, that we're getting the rarest user. But the reason that they're buying it is that everyone else is buying it. That's its appeal. They are buying it because everyone else is. It's popular because it's popular. The second group, the group that reads a bunch of books, They're going to read it also because it's popular. Because word of mouth, the circle of people around them, has reinforced that this is the book that everyone is reading. But as we saw earlier in the Super Bowl example, it's unlikely that your book is going to sell more copies because people who buy a lot of books are going to buy more than one copy of your book. That doesn't make any sense. Books are read once and then gone. But if we think about hit radio, that's not how it works. Hit radio is driven by people who listen to the radio all the time. Now, here's an interesting surprise. Often, we think that we're selling something to people who are going to engage once. We're selling to the people who rarely show up, but we're surprised. Let's take a look at the Broadway theater. Broadway plays and musicals cost millions of dollars to put on and millions more to promote and to get people to come to the theater. A full-page ad in the New York Times can cost more than $80,000. That's just for one ad. It might be worth asking the question then, who's coming? Who should we be reaching out to to get them to come to our show? And if you take a look at how the Broadway producers spend money, what they tend to do is try to reach tourists, people who are in town just for a little while. They run ads on the side of buses. They reach out to hotels and to tour groups. The thinking is, if you can make your play the one play someone's gonna see the one time they go to Broadway, you'll have a hit. Because if you do the math, it looks like there's hundreds of millions of people to choose from, and you don't need very many of them to make your play work. But when the producers did a deeper look they discovered something that was surprising, at least to some of them. It turns out that if you go to a theater, maybe half the people in that theater, it's the only play they're going to see. But a big percentage of the people in the theater have seen three plays this year, or three musicals this year. But it gets even more dramatic, because a significant percentage of people, 5 or 10 percent, have seen 10 or 20 plays this year. So when you do the math, these whales, these whales are the key. Without them, the theater industry disappears. Without them, a play can't make it. Add to that, there's a second kind of whale, not just the whale who's going to see five or 10 or 20 plays this year, but who's going to see this play over and over again. So a play like Wicked, which has been playing on Broadway for years, is largely sustained by people who have seen it a dozen or more times. So what does this teach us as people who would like to make a hit? Well, first we have to choose. We have to decide, are we building Rocky Horror Picture Show? Are we building a cult favorite, something that people are going to see over and over again? Because if we are, we should build it for them. We should make it more complicated more interesting. We should make it so that people can subscribe to it. We should embrace those folks. If you think about how car brands like Ferrari or Jeep have built their profitable sinecures, it's on the back of people who keep coming back again and again. It's something you do on purpose. If you look at something like Twitter, it's optimized for people to get hooked on it. Not everyone, just enough people. The same thing's true with most social media, which is one reason why there's real concern about their cultural impact, because they are sucking some people in at the expense of everything else in their life. Another way to build a hit, though, is more difficult, but for some people, really satisfying, which is to be the Da Vinci Code, the one, the home run. The thing about this is it's awfully difficult to do it on purpose. After the fact, we can look at it and say, oh yeah, of course that was a hit. It was inevitable. But it's not inevitable. Every bestseller in this category is a surprise bestseller. It's a surprise bestseller because starting from scratch, creating Harry Potter, Fifty Shades, figure out which one you want to look at. It's not preordained. Yeah, the sequel will do okay, But the sequel is a different sort of hit. And then the third thing we can do, the one that's most likely to work, is the idea of people like us doing things like this. People like us do things like this is about cultural synchronization. It's when you get people who are already into the medium, who already like books or TV shows or movies or restaurants. When they see but this is the next one, the one that people like them are engaging with. If you look at the Zagats restaurant guide, which had a 15-year run before Google bought them, the people who had a Zagats guide were people who went out to dinner three or four times a week. These folks were always looking for another place to go. And once they heard that people like them were going to a place like this, they went too. So modeling this, people like us, do things like this, is something we do at the beginning of the process. Understanding that we're not looking for lightning to strike us. We're not looking to come up with something completely out of the blue that will stun everyone and become a worldwide sensation. That almost never happens. Sure, Sai had his video seen by more than 2 billion people. Pretty much anyone with internet access saw him dancing in Korean. But you can't do it on purpose. Even he can't do it on purpose again. So I think we have to walk away from that part of hit-making and instead figure out who we seek to serve, how to create something that connects with a small, intertwined group of people. It's easier than ever to do that. While this discussion of hits would not be complete, without a riff about Chris Anderson's long tail. Lots of us had looked at Ziff's law and the power law curve long before Chris Anderson from Wired magazine took a look. But he looked at it differently than everyone else. He said, I'm not going to look at the hits. I'm going to look at the other half of the curve. You may recall at the beginning, I said that 135 words account for half of all the usage of words in the English language. What about the rest? The other 500,000. Well, they also account for half. Each one, a little bit, all added up. What Chris discovered in the long tail is simple. Most limited shelf space institutions, like Barnes & Noble or Blockbuster or the local record store, oh, I forgot, there is no local record store anymore. Most of them have limited shelf space. So what are they going to stock They're going to stock the hits. So the power law curve gets cut in half. All we get is the left part, the steep part. If you're looking for Jamaican polka music, you're out of luck. Because they would have to have a million records in that store, and they don't. But then the internet came along. And the internet said, we'll stock it all. And something extraordinary happened. Amazon discovered that they get half their sales, half in the book department, from books that Barnes & Noble doesn't even carry. And back when Blockbuster was in business and Netflix rented DVDs, Netflix discovered that half of their rentals, half, were of titles that Blockbuster didn't carry. And if you take a look at the iTunes store versus a record store, you got it. Half the sales on iTunes are titles that were never once sold in a record store. The long tail, it turns out, is inevitable when somebody with infinite shelf space opens a chance for people to find it. So Twitter is a long tail. Most of the people, half, on Twitter who tweet have not that many followers. But when you add them all up, they have just as many followers as the people on the hit side. So what should you do with this long tail information? Well, let me tell you what you shouldn't do. What you shouldn't do is seek to live out on the long tail. Because lots of products on the iTunes store sell zero copies a year, maybe one, maybe two. If enough people are selling two copies a year, Apple is happy. But if you're one of those musicians, not so much. So living on the long tail isn't nearly as lucrative and powerful as owning the long tail, as creating a collection of thousands and thousands of blog posts or millions and millions of SKUs so that people will find one or two or five. You don't care which one because you own the whole thing. So I think in my blog, which has never once, never once had a hit post, none of my 7,000 posts have been the most popular post of the day across the internet. But When you add up 7,000 posts that sit there quietly in a long tail, every day somebody finds one. And the whales show up and they find a lot of them. Also, fine with me. If they want to read it, I'm happy to share it. So, we're left with people like us do things like this. That when you don't have a hit yet, the option feels like, oh, I got to hire a PR firm and hype and spam and promote. But maybe, just maybe, that's not the right answer. Maybe you need to find some whales. Maybe you need to create a cultural construct so that people like us know about something like this. Each of us, more now than ever, is capable of creating a hit. John Hammond and the rest of the gatekeepers don't have the power that they used to have. But making a hit is about more than just doing what the muse tells you to do. It involves thoughtfully analyzing what kind of hit you want to make, who's it for, what's it for, and how are we going to talk about it. Where a creator will get into trouble is being confused about who she's trying to reach. Because if you're seeking the masses, you're going to dumb down your work. You're going to lower the reading level, make it simple or obvious, However, it's not the masses that are looking for what you make. The masses aren't looking for anything. That's why they're the masses. Welcome to Hitsville. A word from our sponsor, ZipRecruiter. And then, after the break, I'll be back to answer your questions about last week's episode. If you want to leave a question about this episode, I hope you will. Visit akimbo.link and press the appropriate button. While you're there, check out the show notes for each one of our episodes.
1: Hi again, this is Ian Siegel, CEO and co-founder of ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. At ZipRecruiter, one of the things we figured out early on was having employees who were passionate about the product talking to customers made a big impact on how customers felt about our business. And we had to figure out a way to test for this after we figured it out. So what we do now is we ask every employee to tell us in the interview process about something they love and to make us love it too. I once had a candidate tell me about grapefruit. If you can get me excited about grapefruit, you can definitely get employers excited about the ZipRecruiter hiring solution. That's how I find passionate people. I hope you found it helpful. Here's something else that may be helpful. If you're hiring, you can try ZipRecruiter for free today. ZipRecruiter posts your job to over 100 of the web's top job boards. So great candidates have a lot of different ways to find your job. To get started, go to ZipRecruiter.com Seth. That's ZipRecruiter.com Seth. Try it out, see how it feels, and experience how simple hiring can be. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. Hey Seth, it's Maria. Hey Seth, my name's Kyle Gray and first of all, I love the show and that completes my question. Hi Seth, this is Paul from Huntington Beach, California. Hi Seth, this is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi Seth, warm greetings from Curacao. Hey Seth. Hey Seth. Hi Seth and
0: greetings from Lithuania. Hey Seth. Our previous episode was about writer's block and the irony of the following is not lost on me. It turns out. We're not getting a lot of questions from you, and it might be writer's block. So prove me wrong. Send in questions about this episode or previous ones. All you've got to do is visit akimbo.link, A-K-I-M-B-O dot link, and press the appropriate button, and you'll be able to ask your question, and if we can, we'll answer it here on the podcast. Now, on to my favorite question from last time. About writer's block and storytelling.
1: I believe that leadership comes from this amazing ability to tell a story and to bring allegory into the equation so that people can see your vision, so that they feel emotionally connected to what you are doing. My question is how do you come up with the different allegories and metaphors that you do to do this? Thing to be able to connect with people on such an emotional level. That is what interests me because I believe that that is a really important leadership skill that cannot be underestimated. Thank you so much.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of juiciness in this question because, in fact, human beings are storytelling machines. We almost never tell ourselves facts, we almost never walk away from a situation knowing the exact truth of everything that occurred. We are lousy eyewitnesses. We are bad at remembering things specifically. But we're great at stories. We make up stories all the time. We see something happening once, twice, three times, and we assume it will happen another time. The things that we remember from being three years old or seven years old or 12 years old, what we remember are the stories. Now, a story isn't once upon a time. A story is not they lived happily ever after. A story is a set of symbols integrated together to create a memory, an emotion. We get tension, and then we release the tension. We like analogies and metaphors, because that takes a new thing and hooks it into an old thing. So yes, this is where leadership lies. Leadership is the act of getting people to fall in love with a version of the future, one that they hadn't necessarily considered or believed possible. If people can't fall in love with that vision, it's going to be very hard to get them on your side, to get them to work toward that vision. In order to lead, we tell stories. And the stories that we tell that work, they're the ones that resonate with people. How to get good at it. Is there a manual? What's the shortcut? Well, it turns out that very few people are natural-born storytellers. Most of us aren't able to tell a story well at all until we're in our teens. For some people, it takes years longer than that. But here's what I know. To end up being a great storyteller, you must begin by being a lousy storyteller. That's showing up again and again with metaphors with analogies, with examples, with anecdotes. You don't do it very well until one day you do it better. And therefore, we have to invest in telling stories that don't work, looking people in the eye and telling them our best version of ourselves, our best version of that event that happened and why they might want to understand it. Why is a sailboat like a watermelon seed? Well, it turns out if you teach sailing long enough to kids about how to sail a 12-foot sailboat, you will discover that if you show them a watermelon seed and hold it in a certain way and take them through the thinking about why a watermelon seed will fly out if you squeeze it between your fingers, maybe, just maybe, kids will understand how a sailboat works. I don't know who the first person was who invented the watermelon seed sailboat story. It probably wasn't my friend Michael who I heard teaching that story in 1978. He heard it from someone who heard it from someone. What I do know is that the act of telling a story poorly is the only method to telling a story well. Tell your story, see what makes people's eyes light up, see what engages with them, and then find a new story a true story, a relevant story, a story they can remember and take action on. If you've got questions about this episode, I hope you'll check out akimbo.link and click the appropriate button. We'll listen to your question, and if we can, we'll include it in a future episode. See you next time.
1: People are
0: talking about the marketing seminar.
1: I was completely blown away. It is incredibly comprehensive, crazy, crazy, crazy useful. It's it's easily worth five times what I paid for the course. The content in the class was awesome. What I learned, I actually could apply immediately and get results. I thought it's going to be kind of an automated course. And the big shock is... The cohort. I have never felt more supported in any online program I've done.
0: And that actually changed the way we talk about the project. It changed the way we promote it on our website. I use it in other projects.
1: A way to really evaluate it and to apply it that I have never experienced anywhere else. It's so much more than just a marketing seminar.
0: Find out more at themarketingseminar.com.